Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, discuss the potential endgame for Vladimir Putin, and Francis Durnley interviews academic Dr. Taras Kuzio on his new paper arguing how the West and Ukraine can defeat Russia. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 3rd of November, one year and 251 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor for Defence Dom Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So over the last 24 hours, let's, um, let's have a look at what's been going on. Russia has fired seven missiles, 70 airstrikes, 38 Shahid attacks of 131 and 136 variants, and 93 MLRS attacks, multiple launch rocket systems, so artillery, across the country, basically in a broad arc from Sumy in the northeast through the Donbass and across the south to Herzon. This is according to Ukraine's MOD this morning. Civilian deaths reported, but no numbers attributed there. More than 100 settlements in the Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Hezon, Mykolaiv regions reportedly came under artillery fire. Ukraine's air defence says it destroyed 24 drones and one KH-59 guided missile. President Zelensky said in a post on social media this morning, last night there were about 40 Shahids, more than half of them were shot down, which kind of tallies with what the air defence loss are saying. And Ukraine then further says that it repelled 10 attacks in the Kharkiv region. I mention that in particular because if you haven't heard George Barros from the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, he was with us on Wednesday, I think. Yeah, Wednesday. He noted that area, Kharkiv, not heard an awful lot about it recently, but he was just he was concerned about that flank. So obviously we're, we're keeping an eye on everything, but we'll t- pay particular attention to that. Fighting has continued around Avdivka. Uh, Russia ha- is using air support there. As you should do, you should try and try and use all the all the bits together. So air giving cover for ground activity, but it, they've still not got their got it working. So uh, they've not pushed forward there. 
A bit further south, and Russia has reportedly suffered very heavy losses in a failed armoured assault around the eastern town of Vuladar. So this is about 30 k's southwest of Donetsk city. Now, this bit comes out of Ukrainian military bloggers, so possibly not the strongest of sources, but is somewhat substantiated by last night's comments by President Zelensky. So the Ukrainian bloggers are saying that at least 10 Russian tanks Russian troops and other combat vehicles were destroyed around the village of Mikilsky, which is about two k's outside Vuladar, to the southeast of Vuladar. And then responding to that attack, President Zelensky said last night in his nightly address, there was an attempt by the enemy to advance in the direction of Vuladar, but our soldiers stopped it, inflicting heavy losses on the enemy, dozens of vehicles, many killed and wounded. Now, Vuladar, still held by Ukraine, is at a strategic intersection between the, if you like, the fighting in the east and the fighting down the south. So it's right in that kind of elbow, if you like. It's been some of the bloodiest fighting since the full-scale invasion began 20 months ago. It's about 70 k's north of Mariupol, but it's that corner which could be, if that was to take in both the east and the south, those flanks could equally be pushed back and that sharp edge shaved off, if you know what I mean. So it it is important down there. Now, Russian sources are saying the Ukrainian forces conducted a missile strike on Russia's Dnieper grouping of forces, the headquarters of that, sorry, in Herzon Oblast on Wednesday. Russian mill blog community saying that Ukrainian forces launched Storm Shadow cruise missiles and Neptune anti-ship missiles. <laughs> You've got to be good to see these things in the air and go, oh, it's a Neptune, that's a Storm Shadow. But cruise missiles striking Strukove in Herzon Oblast. Now, that is the spit of land that runs down the east side of Crimea. And it does connect to the north and into Crimea. It's not the most obvious and easiest route between them, but it is yet another connection. Russian air defence is said to have only intercepted half of those missiles. Now, Russian opposition media outlet Astra said that four Ukrainian missiles struck the Aura Recreation Centre near Strokove that has been serving as the Russian Dnieper Grouping's headquarters, but numerous other Russian sources... so. Numerous sources saying similar things, but from Russia, so pinch salt time. But numerous Russian sources saying that Colonel General Mikhail Toplinsky, you may remember we spoke about him last week, the recently named commander of that grouping of forces, he was reportedly not injured. And that's that's it for me, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis, can I come to you? There's been a, a few different pieces of political and diplomatic news. Um, how would you weave them together, Francis Dunley? Thanks, David. Ukraine is a democratic nation fighting for its life and one that in peacetime would fast be approaching a presidential election. Were it not for the war, that election would be scheduled for the 31st of March 2024, according to the Constitution, which mandates elections be held on the last Sunday of March of the fifth year of the incumbent president's term of office. The conflict has changed all that. Elections cannot currently be held in Ukraine under martial law, which must be extended every 90 days and is due to expire on November the 15th, after the normal date in October for parliamentary polls, but before presidential elections. Now, as things stand, that martial law is expected to be extended for obvious reasons. But nevertheless, there are voices both within Ukraine and from outside saying that it is important for there to be a presidential election at some point in the coming year. 
That's not because they want Zelensky out, but because they think it will shore up his political position were he to win, securing a further mandate domestically and silencing critics. It would also, they argue, signal to the world that Ukraine is committed to victory. But it comes with risks. And I don't just mean for Zelensky's political power. For one, can one safely run a fair election when a country is still under bombardment? Does it risk civilian lives, especially if the Russians try to disrupt it? Does it distract at a time when matters are delicate on the world stage and Kyiv's priority is persuading its allies to do more? These are all relevant questions. Well, Reuters is reporting that President Zelensky is weighing up whether to hold presidential elections next spring, citing the country's foreign minister. Not necessarily a revelation. We have, after all, talked about this in the past. But typically, when these things are being talked about openly, it's suggestive that conversations are at quite an advanced stage. Mrs. Zelensky has previously said that voting could take place during wartime if partners shared the cost, legislators approved, and everyone got to the polls. That last stipulation, in particular, may cause problems because not everyone will be in places deemed safe. Now, I've offered historical examples of countries that have run presidential elections whilst at war in the past, most famously in 1864, when Lincoln won re-election against his former General McClellan, thus dooming the peace movement and ensuring that the Union would continue to fight against the Confederacy. Lincoln won that re-election, however, following decisive military victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg, and the likelihood of any such major success in the coming months for Ukraine are slim. There was a time when it looked like Lincoln could lose that election, despite his popularity. Churchill, after all, lost in 1945, although that was in a different scenario. The war was effectively already won by then. So perhaps the best historical comparison, therefore, is the Korean election of 1952, for in the midst of the Korean War. That conflict for one, has deeper parallels than the American Civil War and World War II. We've talked about it many times. The impact of the election is also very interesting. It legitimised the government of South Korea, which had been established under the presidency of Rhee. Internationally, it was recognised and its leadership was secured at home. It mandated, too, the continuation of the war. But crucially... South Korea needed to prove those things in 1952. Its legitimacy, its political leaders, its international mandate. Does Ukraine? One could argue that all of those things are already secure. Why risk it? So that will be very much, I think, on people's minds. And we'll continue to monitor any developments of whether there is going to be a presidential election in the coming year. But in other developments, a slightly bizarre one coming out of Kyiv, which is that they've said that the Kremlin spread a rumour that Putin had died to test his popularity among the Russian public. So Andrei Yusov, a Ukrainian military intelligence spokesperson, has said that a report last week by a rather obscure Russian telegram channel, one that I should say we follow, reports a lot of <laughs> nonsense, to put it mildly, uh, put out a claim that uh, the president had died and the Ukrainians are claiming that it was a ploy to help tighten domestic control at home. In this way, the empire, which is built on the work of the secret services, learns how to continue to rule. 
this spokesman told Ukrainian media. So the channel particularly is called General SVR. It reported on October the 27th that Putin had died and the body dum- doubles were representing him in public. It claimed even that the body was being stored in a freezer. As I say, this comes as no shock. The channel's renowned for its florid posts and regularly reports that Putin has died, which is a result why we didn't report on it, because it says it so often that why do we need to keep <laughs> mentioning these rumours? But despite its reputation for fake news, it does have an audience in Russia and also certain tabloids around the world do report certain things that it's said. Dmitry Peskov, even the Kremlin spokesperson, has had to issue denials in the past of things that have come out from it. But according to the Ukrainian intelligence, this was all part of the Kremlin's master plan. The basic purpose of fake news is to look at how society reacts in terms of numbers and dynamics. The purpose is to look at the reactions of individuals, the elite and the media, he said. Obviously, the conclusion there being that they learn who the people who are recipients of this are, who are eager to read it, who are eager to share it and thereby can know who to keep an eye on. Despite this claim, I should add, there has been no authoritative analysis linking the Kremlin to the channel. It has distanced itself from the Kremlin in the past and instead claims to be authored by a former officer in the intelligence service, but crucially the word being former and one that is quite hostile towards the Kremlin. But again, we have no evidence for that either. So all of this needs to be not only treated with a handful of salt, but maybe a truckful. But nevertheless, an interesting story which speaks to some of the counterintelligence claims that are being made all the time, actually, by uh, Kiev and indeed Moscow about the Ukrainians. But turning to the US now, as we build yesterday, the Republican-led lower chamber of Congress sought to pass a bill that was an aid package for Israel, $14 billion, defying Biden's request to also include more money for Ukraine and other pressing priorities. That bill has passed, but nevertheless, as I talked about yesterday, It will almost certainly fail in the Democratic-controlled Senate, and Biden has said that he would veto it regardless. So this is political football, pure and simple. But it does show the degree of scepticism, one could argue, in the lower chamber of combining support for Israel and Ukraine in one package, seeing this as one issue, something that, of course, President Biden has been quite eager to do of late. So interesting and worth, again, our keeping an eye on. But lastly, just a final word about the incidents in the Republic of Dagestan, where, according to the Institute for the Study of War today, Russian officials appeared to be pursuing limited punishments for the October 29th anti-Semitic riots, which several Russian officials and Russian state media have called pogroms. Again, that's quite telling, I think. Russian authorities have arrested, we understand, 15 individuals in connection with those riots, which James spoke about earlier in the week but only those who encroached on the lives of police officers and those who initiated it. So Peskov has stated that the Kremlin supports the approach by the authorities there in punishing only select rioters. So what should we read into this? Is it a sign of action, a desire to genuinely stamp out anti-Semitic riots? Or is it the attempt to arrest only a few and is that indicative of the fact that they don't care that they simply see this as an embarrassing incident that caught the international attention but it actually was effectively given the green light by the authorities on the ground perhaps they feel they're not powerful enough to try and arrest everybody we just don't know 
But either way, it's worthy of mention, I think, in the present context and the fact that Peskov has had to get involved in this. We've spoken, spoken at length in the past about the relationship between Israel and Moscow and uh, the degree to which that relationship is now very, very fraught indeed following Hamas's invitation to the Kremlin. So we'll keep an eye on that too. A lot going on, but a lot more to monitor rather than anything too conclusive as yet. Well, thank you very much, Francis Dernling. Dom, can we turn to you? You obviously run the weekly Defence in Depth. You present the, uh, the video on the Telegraph's YouTube channel. And this week, you've been speculating and teasing out some ideas on how Vladimir Putin's uh, regime, his rule, may end. In your research looking into that, what did you find? What struck you? And, and how would you sum up some of, some of your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I was just looking at the undercurrents, mainly the, the kind of economic side in Russia, and I posit the idea that there was, at the start of the full-scale invasion, there was a window when the oligarchs around Putin, those, the money men, I think they are all men, who could have got rid of him had they wanted to, there was a window of opportunity for them to do so. Not that they're against dictators, they love dictators. They love the model of a kleptocracy. They just want a thug in charge who can keep everything rolling. And the fact that it wasn't the lightning invasion that they were promised and that meant that they couldn't you know, increasingly couldn't get to their yachts, their gold, they couldn't use the cryptocurrencies they managed to hang on to. So there was a window where the oligarchs might have thought, actually, we need a new CEO, let's get rid of this fella, get someone else in. But they, they didn't take it. Those that got out or wanted to get out, did, and got out fast. Those that are now stuck in Russia, a gilded cage when they can't really get out there, and they've lost all their power because they are there and, and their assets largely overseas. So don't expect the, olig- the oligarchs to do anything. However, I then looked at the younger generation, the, as I say, the adaptable, optimistic, adventurous, entrepreneurial, socially and financially ambitious, properly, truly Generation Z, and they're not really into all this stuff. Uh, sorry, I'm grand sweeping statements, but a lot of them are not into that, into the idea that, that, that Putin is trying to sell them. So they wanted that they wanted to continue working. And if they these were the people that had they been working abroad, a lot of them with MBAs from prestigious Western organisations, Western institutions. If they'd been working abroad, they would have been sucking up global best, best practice, the innovative ideas, all the stuff that's going on out there, technological developments. They could have then taken those back to Russia to power Russia through the 21st century, made a fortune, so on and so forth. But they've been shut out from that. Now, they've a lot of them left the country when the partial mobilisation was announced last year. We think about a million people left the country, many of them fighting age males, and many of them this class, this next generation. Now, stand fast the idea about, well, they only got uppity when their futures were in doubt. That's a valid concern, completely valid concern, but not one for today. I was more interested in what that flight of human capital would do, the long-term effects on Russia. So these guys have all buggered off to Uzbekistan and Georgia in particular. So they've got staying in the region, but not inside Russia and so on and so forth. And they are, this, it, there's been a, it's a massive brain drain. And there, there are cracks starting to show. And we've reported on it before. James Kilner has been very good in this. But if you look at Russia's oil fields, the lack of investment, both in maintenance, physical stuff, but also ideas, it's starting to, starting to creak there. There's been a, most Western corporations, not all have got out of the energy market in Russia and the effects are being felt. The labour market too. There's been a huge crunch in the labour market. Businesses complaining about a shortage of workers. One of the typical routes was to get Central Asian migrants. That was a normal labour route when they needed to turn the tap on. But that's dried up because these people thinking, well, I don't want to go there and get mobilised. Now, Putin, as I say, he doesn't care about how many people die at the front 
as long as they, those bodies can be replaced by more people to, to go and die at the front. But what he will care about is when that, and this is long term, I'm not talking very short term stuff, but when that well of the economically active dries up. So you've got the, all the babushkas drinking the Kool-Aid saying, yeah, Putin, Uncle Joe, Stalin, we love it. Brilliant. We're all up for that. But the economically active, the people who actually power a, a society, an economy, they're increasingly not there and they're not interested. And so if they're being pressed into military service, they're dying. But what they're certainly doing is not contributing at home, not building Russia in the 21st century, not spending their money. And this is starting to be felt. So this week, was it last week? I think it was this week, Russia's central bank put interest rates up to 15%. The ruble has been hovering around that very psychologically important mark of 100 to the dollar. It briefly went over that, and it's now down to, I think, about 93 last time I looked. But it is having an effect. Sanctions is a medium to long-term economic game, but it can have uh, immediate uh, an immediate impact on Mrs. Novichoksky's uh, plans for Wimbledon. So a lot of people are getting out if they can because they they just don't they're not interested in that and it is starting to have an effect. After Vaz, the car maker, and Ozen, it's Russia's Amazon, starting to employ prisoners. And I so that's what this week's defense in depth is about. Go and have a look on YouTube, please do. The more you look at my stuff, the more that the defense in depth that Francis did um, sort of dwindles. So yeah, please go and look at my stuff. What was it, what was that comment? Sorry, Dom, just remembering. What was the top rated comment on? Uh, uh, didn't it say something like, "Isn't this the best defense in depth that there's ever been?" I seem to remember that was the top rated comment that I did. Anyway, just okay, we get the crazes as well. They all turn up. But I mention that because, not only for that, but also because Chris O on Twitter, he's a good defence analyst and commentator, he's noting today that Russian authorities are expanding military recruitment to cover migrants, debtors, former mercenaries, private security guards, the unemployed, convicted criminals and ex-convicts and those under investigation for crimes. Now, he's citing the, the website Important Stories. And they are saying that the continued need for manpower that I was referencing in the DID video prompted the Russian government's Office of the Presidential Plenipotentiary Representative to issue a plan to recruit socially vulnerable sections of society for the army. Now, this plan is set out in a letter to the administration of the Central Federal District that covers Moscow and most of the western part of European Russia. And it requires the Central Federal District District to provide weekly information on how this recruitment drive is going. And among the categories of people that are now eligible for mandatory recruitment into the Russian military, persons under investigation for crimes of minor or moderate gravity, convicts and ex-convicts, as I said, debtors and bankrupt people, the unemployed, people who have recently acquired Russian citizenship, foreigners who have applied for Russian citizenship and foreigners subject to expulsion or deportation. So, as I said, it's, this is a long-term thing. It's not going to impact tomorrow, but the the economic impact and the flight of human capital from Russia is starting to have an effect. And regardless of what happens on the battlefield, the lines aren't moving at the moment, but Putin can't hide it any longer. Regardless of what happens in, in Ukraine his society and Russia is being impacted by this war in various different ways, in various different locations and sectors of society. But it is starting to show and it will have an effect eventually. But do go and check out my Defence In Depth video to, uh, for more information on that. Thank you very much, Dom. Now you and Francis have stopped squabbling. Francis, do you want to come back on that? Sure. Well, I, I think it's really, this is a really important subject. It's one, of course, that we've covered 
many times in the past and haven't been able to talk about as much recently because we just don't have the, the data at hand, although there is more information now coming out about the state of the Russian economy. Many people will think, well, haven't we heard all of this before? But the fact is, it is worth bearing in mind that we are talking about an enormous economy here. It is the world's largest country. And the war has been going on for 20 months. No economy is going to collapse overnight that is of that size and scale. This is still incredible though it feels to say this a a short war by the standards of most wars and so when you're thinking back historically and looking at countries that have suffered greatly economically as a consequence of conflict we're talking many more years than this one but that said for all of the reasons that Dom has just laid out there are reasons to think that the Russian economy is particularly vulnerable and there are those academics that I've cited in the past who say that when it comes to this apparent robustness of the Russian economy, that it's a bit of a facade, that you can't trust the figures that are being put out by the Kremlin. And that, in fact, really, if you look under the bonnet, it's not a healthy society in any stretch of the imagination in terms of the economy, not just because of that brain drain, but just generally because of the extortionate cost of weaponry and of mobilising a society and converting factories to being used to pump out weapons, etc. So I think it's just very important when we're thinking about Russia in this context of remembering that this is having an effect, but it will take time. And so particularly given the delicate situation at the moment. We were talking yesterday about how so much of the focus is on Ukraine's strengths and particularly at the moment, Ukraine's weaknesses with regard to the counteroffensive and not enough about the fragility within Russia itself. So it's just important we, we keep the, the lens of attention on that and don't believe the Kremlin narrative so that it is this very strong, very robust economy and domestic society. There is so much evidence to counter that, not least, of course, the Prigozhin mutiny, which seems to have been forgotten by a lot of Western commentators, but which really displayed the depth of cracks within Russian society. And so there is every reason to think that we might see similar disruption, whether it be economic, whether it be domestic, whether it be military, in the coming months ahead. We cannot assume that Russia is always going to be strong in this war. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. That was a fascinating discussion there. Let's move to our final thoughts then. Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, so I was thinking about General Zeluzny's essay yesterday that we spoke about at length yesterday, and he's talking about how about time, and, and there's going to be a lot more of this war left and he, he was basically saying that he accepts the counter-offensive has not done what what people hoped it it would do but that's not the end of it that's what offensive do they sometimes work they sometimes don't but he was talking about time George Barros I think I'm paraphrasing but I think he came out with a phrase the other day about that we're in a moment of strategic peril it was something like that if not then that sort of sums it up I think and this moment where we're approaching winter the second winter so things are going to slow down on the battlefield most likely not definitely but probably and there's all this talk about in political capitals about, oh, should we, where's it going? Is it, are we all exhausted? Georgia Maloney's comments, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think it's worth just a very brief reminder about the, what the Taliban used to say about the West for all our fantastic, hyper sophisticated weaponry and this, that, and the other, and you know, blah, blah, blah. They said, never forget, you may have the watches, but we have the time. And what they said, what that was meant was, you've got all the fancy stuff, but we can last you out. This is a fight that we are we are prepared to to see through, and that worked in the end. And Zeluzny was saying the same thing about Russia that actually, you now Putin doesn't care how many people die at the front as long as he can keep that sausage machine fed. 
So time is not on Ukraine's side. And hence, I can see why many people would now, second year or second winter, approaching the two-year mark, the counteroffensive that's going slowly, still going slowly. A lot of people say, oh, God, maybe we should you know, try and sue for peace. It's just, we just want it to stop. Now I think is the time for us to double down and hold our nerve and say we're in it for the long game. It is exhausting. It is emotionally draining, but it is a worthy cause. And if you care about what's happening in Ukraine, I think most people listen to this do, and you compare the suffering that's experienced there every day to our suffering of having to watch this, report on it, think about it, talk about it all the time, then our suffering pales into in, in comparison. But that's not to discount it. But I think we, we, we do just need to, as I've said before, make space for ourselves, make space for our friends, because this is a long fight and there's a long, long way to go yet. And the more we try to give in to that, that, oh, I just want it to stop, which is a totally noble and understandable position. I want it to stop, but I don't want it to stop on Russia's terms. And so we just need to, I think, just dig in, as General Zaluzny is saying, those that are not in Ukraine, you know, just do our bit to, to stay here, to stay here for them and keep reporting, keep looking, keep talking, thinking about it and keeping it in the, in the public consciousness. But a long, a long time to go, uh, but, but time not necessarily on Ukraine's side, all the more reason for us not to, not to water down our support for them now. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols. Francis Sternley, would you like the very final words for this week? Well, thanks, David. Dom talked about the suffering Ukraine has experienced there. And I wanted to end the week with something a bit different, an insight into life in the occupied Ukrainian territories. It's an article told through Russian eyes, but even through those, one can divulge a picture of what life is like for some of the Ukrainians there too. It's a piece in Layout, which is a publication founded by independent journalists that explore how society functions in Russia. And it's called How Russian Women Survive the Betrayals of Warring Partners and Change Their Attitudes Towards War. It begins thus. Since February 2022, the Russian authorities have been cultivating the image of a military hero who, risking his life, defends his homeland and family in Ukraine from an external threat. But military wives are increasingly admitting that their husbands met someone else during the war and are demanding a divorce. But for some of them, it was the family crisis and not thousands of reported of killed Ukrainians that became the reason to reassess what is happening in Ukraine. So not the war crimes, not the horror, but the consequences of the war for their own relationships, a revealing insight into human nature, one might say. But I think the most troubling aspect of it is what snippets, sometimes a single word, suggest about the nature of these relationships between Russian conscript soldiers and the women in these territories. One of the soldiers shared pictures of, quote, my local girl, which is revealing, I think. In one of the chats a that's in the article, a derogatory term for Ukrainian women is used by one of the soldiers. Another sums up what they do in their spare time more bluntly, simply as rapes, drinks and drugs. Now, it may be that some of these relationships are more genuine rather than co coerced, but based on the above, one has to wonder how balanced any relationship can be in that context. They don't return from there as heroes, writes one of the wives in the piece. I always told mine that he is strong, that I believe in him. I'm proud of him and I'm really looking forward to him. 
I was hysterical if he didn't get in touch. I lost weight and had bruises under my eyes. Then it turned out that every other day he could go to Gordonetsk, go to bars and saunas with friends. I don't think people who cheat are risking their lives there. The piece also looks at those soldiers who've returned from the war mentally scarred and overall paints a extremely bleak and depressing picture of the conflict and its consequences. But at this stage, 20 months in, did we really expect anything else, David? Thank you, Dom and Francis. Taras Cusio is adjunct professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kyiv Mola Academy and an associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. The author and editor of 22 books, he has recently written a report for the Society into why he believes Russia and the anti-Western axis must be militarily defeated and laying out concisely what needs to happen to facilitate that at this critical moment. Dr Cusio sat down with Francis to discuss his conclusions. Here is their conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Could we perhaps start with you just summarising the essence of the report? Yes, the report was written before the recent Hamas uh, terrorist attack on Israel, but obviously had to take that into account. But it wasn't such a big problem for me to take that into account because it reinforced the main line of the argument of the report. And, And that was that, firstly, the Western softly, softly, dithering approach to Russia, which had de facto already declared war on the West back in early 2007. The West had been ignoring this up until the Russian invasion of 2022, even to the extent of ignoring it, I would say, in 2014. And that this dithering has uh, continued in some ways in the drip-drip policy of particularly the Biden administration, which has led us to this kind of impasse that uh, Ukraine's offensive is now going to be dragging on at least until 2024, higher casualties on the Ukraine side, great amount of destruction. And this is a reflection of the Biden administration, firstly, not willing to openly say that the goal of the US is Russia's military defeat, which is something that has been said by Great Britain, Scandinavia, Poland, Baltic states, and the Czech Republic. So I call those countries more hawks, as opposed to the Biden administration, Germany, France as doves. And the second is that the unwillingness, at least until the Hamas attack, to openly talk about the fact that an anti-Western axis of evil has declared war on the West. This was plainly evident a year ago when Iran and Russia cemented a military alliance, which has been added to by North Korea. And the resultant is this. My final comment would be that the anti-Western axis of evil is fighting the West in two places, Israel and Ukraine. And the anti-Western axis wants to destroy and erase from the map of the Middle East and Europe, both countries, Russia in the case of Ukraine and Iran in the case of Israel. So there's a clear connection between them, uh, much to the chagrin of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Well, a lot to unpack here. I want to start with the Biden administration. You're very critical in the report of them. How do you account for the hesitancy 
that you describe, and particularly with regards to this definition of victory and why they hesitate to say they want Russia to be defeated. Why Why is that, in your view? Well, we, we tend to forget that Joe Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, and the Obama administration was pretty abysmal in 2014, didn't really react at all to Russia's invasion of eastern Ukraine and occupation and annexation of Crimea. The US, UK and Russia had provided security guarantees to Ukraine under the Budapest Memorandum in 1994 in return for Ukraine giving up nuclear weapons. But there was no sign of either President Obama and, by the way, Prime Minister Cameron in 2014. And after that, and on top of the failed red lines in Syria, after that, Obama vetoed the sending of weapons to to Ukraine. So Biden comes from that background. The Obama administration, after all, tried to reset relations with Russia a year after Russia invaded Georgia and de facto annexed Abkhazia and South Ossetia. That reset failed, as all resets with Russia always fail, because Russia understands a reset as the West resetting, not both sides resetting. And this continued. When Biden was elected president, he cancelled the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 that President Trump had imposed. Of course, that was a bit of a waste of time because Germany then in the end cancelled Nord Stream 2 after the invasion. So Obama comes from that background and looking at the three decades of Ukraine history, it's a very different Democratic Party to that under Bill Clinton, which was in that sense far more hawkish, I would say, than Obama-Biden. I think added to that is also the fears that they've always raised, the Biden administration of nuclear escalation. I think many experts talk about that as being exaggerated and playing into Russia's or Vladimir Putin's hands. For example, military experts like Lawrence Friedman would say it would not bring any military benefits to Russia on the battlefield. And it would actually kill a lot of Russian soldiers and the Russian civilians, as well as Ukrainians. But also other arguments have been made, such as, well, you know, better the devil we know rather than the devil we don't. Somebody worse will come after Vladimir Putin. I find it difficult to see who could be worse than Vladimir Putin, who was convicted by the International Criminal Court. But there you are. In Russian history, actually, after military defeats, both in the 19th and 20th centuries, reformers and uh, moderates have actually come to power after Russia has been military defeated. So those are the kind of arguments that, that have been made. And so it's been like a drip drip effect where Ukraine has said, can you give us these? The answer is no. A month later, Ukraine asks again. The answer is maybe. And then third month down the road, it's OK, we'll give you them. And this has concrete results in, in the case of Ukraine. It allowed the Russians to build these three lines of fortifications, lay hundreds of thousands of, of mines, and has uh, led to this very slow offensive, which is now going to be dragging on, and at least till 2024. So I think it's a mixture of those different factors. That's the Democrats. We'll come to Republicans perhaps in a moment. But staying on the more cautious countries, of course, Europe too has seen degrees of caution. You mentioned Germany, you mentioned France. 
How do you account for their caution? The same reasons I'm imagining will be similar. But do you think there are other factors that are unique to the European context in play as well? Well, there isn't really a European context because there are so many different kind of strands in Europe. Germany and France have a long tradition of both anti-Americanism and pro-Russianism, which you don't get, for example, in Italy or United Kingdom. In the case of Germany, Schultz, he's somebody who comes from that's what we would remember as the CND background, that campaign for nuclear disarmament background. So he, I, it's not that surprising he's in, in that direction, willing to always follow the United States in being very cautious in this drip, drip, and Germany still refusing to send the Taurus missiles. France is a bit different in that, although on the one hand, the political spectrum in France, I would say, is far worse than Germany, because far left, far right, and the Gaullists were in the pro-Russian camp for, for the last elections, and Macron was the only one that wasn't. So Macron's kind of changed from being a, a super dove on the eve of the invasion, uh, trying to sort of get Putin's ear to now supporting Ukraine's membership of NATO, which is very new for France to do, and to be willing to send the French equivalent of the Storm Shadow missiles to Ukraine. So France's, Macron's kind of shifted, but certainly Germany, I would say Chancellor Scholz is hiding behind the back of President Biden and using similar arguments about potential for nuclear escalation. I think what you're unpacking very well here, which we try and do on the podcast, of course, is you can't just break down the world into pro and anti-Ukraine, that there are nuances here that really matter between different countries and leaders. And so it's very interesting. Now, I mentioned the Republican Party. Where do you think things are heading in that direction? There's been quite a lot of developments, obviously, recently in that space. I think that a lot of people just jump onto the bandwagon of assuming that Trump would be a disaster for Ukraine because of their inherent anti-Trumpism, as it were. And I'm not by any means a fan of Donald Trump, but I think we need to learn a bit more about history. Obama administration vetoed the sending of weapons to Ukraine. Trump did not veto them. Uh, And this is something that Ukrainians always point out. And of course, those weapons weren't on the scale we have now. They were more geared towards partisan guerrilla warfare, because the US and Western countries believed Ukraine would be quickly defeated, and therefore there was a need for javelin stingers and laws. But nevertheless, Trump did not veto the sending of weapons, and he also sanctioned Nord Stream 2. So again, as you say, it's not all black and white. I believe that the Republicans will not be as bad as many are fearing if they were to win next year's US presidential elections. Because of the track record of Donald Trump, because despite what Trump says that he thinks he can do a deal with Putin in one day, that will never happen. We know how the Russians operate, how Putin operates. And also because the strong arguments are now even more reinforced by the terrorist attack by Hamas in Israel. And we already had a strong argument prior to that about the linkage between how the war in Ukraine looks to the Russians and uh, the Chinese view of Taiwan. If Ukraine had been very quickly defeated, 
that might have emboldened China to do something on Taiwan. And so China's now backed off, as it were, on Taiwan. So these conflicts are interconnected. And I think these are arguments that have carry a lot of weight in the debate inside the US, plus other arguments such as the US is only sending 5% of its budget to Ukraine. It's not a huge amount. And the US is sending equipment from its own stockpiles and then using this US allocated funding to actually build up new equipment. It's actually very good for the US economy. It's actually increasing employment in places like Pennsylvania, where you have these uh, military factories. So I think the arguments are there, and I don't think that this is going to lead to a catastrophic ending of military support for Ukraine. That's very interesting. Of course, we don't know the degree of conversations taking place between the Ukrainian government of of President Zelensky and Donald Trump's wing of the Republican Party. If I were advising them, I would say Donald Trump is so changeable and uh, so seemingly but easily persuaded by being charmed, in essence, that actually there is an opportunity for Zelensky and for Ukraine to win Donald Trump round if he's played in the right way. But as far as we know, there have not been overtures between Zelensky and Donald Trump, but a subject perhaps to, to break down another day. Another aspect of the report is saying what needs to be done. So how would you summarise what does need to be done at this moment of the war? Of course, in the last couple of days, we've seen the commander of Ukraine's armed forces say what he needs in the military sphere. But I think your report goes even further than that into the political too. So just interested in your perspective on that question. Well, one of the main diplomatic stances that that the doves, such as the Biden administration in Germany, should, should come out and say is they should join the Hawks, the Brit- the British, the Scandinavians, Bolts, Poles and Czechs, in openly saying that they not only want Ukraine not to be defeated, but they want Russia to be military defeated. Because that's the main difference between the Hawks and the Doves. The Hawks are saying both. Ukraine should not be defeated. Russia should be defeated. Whereas the Doves are saying, no, they're not even talking about the second part. They're just talking about the first part. So that, I, to me, is an important and I think we are moving in that direction because of what happened as what happened in Israel. The Biden administration now is linking the two conflicts together. There is now less of a reluctance to talk about there is this anti-Western axis of evil. I think there needs to be a more open stance. And the Biden administration has been not very good at actually explaining to the American public as to why they're supporting Ukraine. What has happened in Israel probably gives them greater ammunition, greater ability to do that, to link these two conflicts together and to talk about them as being both existential for Israel and Ukraine and existential for Western democracies. So I think that, to me, is important. As to the actual military equipment, Everything that is not nuclear, chemical or biological, everything else should be given to Ukraine. It's as simple as that. And let's end this dithering. Let's fully support Israel and Ukraine. Of course, they are different conflicts. That's a separate conversation. And I fully understand that the Israeli-Palestinian question is far more nuanced, complicated than the Ukrainian-Russian, which is very black and white, I would say. There is no gray area. 
but you give Ukrainians everything that they have in the West and give them the moral and diplomatic support. I think the financial side seems to be taken care of by the Europeans, international financial organizations in the US, so I'm not that concerned there. But it's more on the military side, and because there has to be a recognition that this war is not going to end now by Christmas of this year. Sounds a bit like World War One, doesn't it? <laughs> 1914. Mm, it does rather. Say this doesn't happen. Where do you see the situation evolving in the coming months and years? Well, if we look at the different scenarios, I do not think that Russia has the ability to militarily defeat Ukraine. The state of the Russian army is a, and security forces are a reflection of the state of Russia being a mafia state for over a decade. The first time Russia was described to be a mafia state was in 2010. Listeners can find this in a, a US diplomatic cable on WikiLeaks. And it was surprising, therefore, that Western governments never took this into account, that if Russia is a mafia state, that it's, this is not going to just affect the economy and politics. It's going to also affect the military and the security forces in all sorts of ways. And you cannot resolve that in a short period of time. And secondly, you would need to sack every Russian officer, literally, and start afresh. Now, Putin's not going to do that. So I, I just don't see how Russia can militarily defeat Ukraine. Putin has not yet, uh, still, withdrawn from his main invasion goal of subjugating Ukraine. I think that's still a fantasy. But where the potential decline of Western support could lead to is some kind of frozen stalemate. I wouldn't call it a frozen conflict because there a frozen conflict would indicate, as we have seen in Georgia, Moldova, and Azerbaijan until 2020, where there is no, no actual warfare taking place. I think warfare will continue in the case of Ukraine, but a large chunk of southeast Ukraine would continue to be occupied. Ukraine would not have the ability. Now, at the same time, we should not always just focus on Western military support. Again, we tend to forget that Ukraine had a very large military industrial complex in the Soviet Union. It had the largest factory in the world that built nuclear weapons in Dnipropetrovsk. And a lot of that technology has been revived. The Ukraine military industrial sector is revived. You have a, have a very big IT sector. And that is reflected in this incredible amounts of innovations, inventions, this Ukraine, the first country in the world with sea drones. And so Ukraine is itself going to produce a lot of weaponry, even without or with a reduced amount of Western military support. The missile that destroyed the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva, was a Ukrainian missile, not a Western missile. So all of these factors are there, but it's going to make liberating Southeast and Ukraine uh, what Russian nationalists like Putin call New Russia, far more difficult, far more slower, more casualties. One final factor, we simply don't know what is the breaking point. You've discussed this on the pod before. What is the breaking point of the Russian people here? And you talked about it a few days ago about how Ukrainians believed it was like 500, 600,000 dead Russians would be probably the breaking point. And Ukraine 
says that with 300,000 casualties, you're halfway. So again, I think that's also something that we should bear in mind, particularly because of what we saw with the Prigozhin rebellion, where nobody rushed to help Putin. Um, the reason why he could drive so fast up that motorway to Moscow is because the Russian security forces checked into clinics. Their officers didn't want to help Putin. Putin fled from Moscow, and the people that were supposed to protect him didn't. So Russia is not this uh, almighty state in the same way as maybe would see communist China. It's a very different, far more brittle mafia state. So that's a, these are other factors to take into account, particularly as I think Ukraine, irrespective of Western support coming or not or being reduced, Ukraine would continue these attacks inside Russia and in Crimea, military attacks against military targets. It's very, very interesting. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think it's important to mention before we end? I think that what we should be l- looking at is attempting to expand our ability to have an impact on the Russian people. These kinds of activities were undertaken in covert and overt ways in the Cold War. We stopped doing that in 1991. But there is, I think, a a chance here for the West to try to at least influence some aspects of the Russian public to turn away from this war. It is fascinating to see how the CIA have already tried to do that with various advertisements. So I think a lot of this was being done in the Cold War. It's time we revive that attempt at influencing events inside Russia to a greater extent, particularly as this was a kind of a red line about attacking targets inside Russia which Ukraine broke that red line and there was no real comeback consequences from that, from Russia. So Ukraine has shown the way in how we can take the war both militarily and in ideologically in other ways, I think, to, to Russia. There's a huge number of Russians living abroad now. Surely they are potential targets for our information warfare. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And... If you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, 
We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.